Imagine stepping into a magic wardrobe. But wait, that's not actually a wardrobe. It's only the Bible. Inside you find a snowy wood. No, that's just like our world, beset with the winter of sin. Then you meet a fawn. And, but that's not a fawn. It's a symbol of Old Testament saints longing for salvation. Some people read Narnia this way, should you? That is one of the four myths we explore in this second part of our series about Narnia's top seven myths. This is Fantastical Truth. This podcast from Lorehaven helps you explore the best of Christian fantasy, and we apply the wisdom, the wonder, the truth and beauty that we find in these stories to our real world that our creator and savior, Jesus Christ, calls us to serve. I am Lorehaven's publisher, E. Stephen Burnett. And I'm Zachary Russell. And since we're talking about Bible analogies, you can call me Zachariah or Zacchaeus, but I am not a wee little man. I am a rather tall man. So just call me Zach. This is episode 26. How do we defeat the top seven myths about the Chronicles of Narnia? Part two. And hey, this is our 26th episode. We have passed 25. So for our next 25 episodes, we would love to reach new people. So if you've been with us from the beginning, thank you so much. If you're new, welcome. We want to ask you a simple favor. Share your favorite episode so far with one friend or post it on your Facebook or whatever social media timeline. We would love for you to get to enjoy this podcast with someone else. Maybe that's some of your close friends or maybe someone in your family, a coworker, a neighbor, whoever you would like to share it with. Uh, we would love to get this show to more people. So thank you again. That goes double if you and or your friends or family, school chums, whatever, are fans of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's famed septet in which children from our world pass through some magic object or are otherwise magically drawn into the land of Narnia, where myth comes to life. And yet on this side of the wardrobe, uh, Christians and other fans in general tend to have some myths that we make up on our own about uh, C.S. Lewis's fantasy series. In our last episode, actually, Zach, it was two episodes ago, we interrupted to do the uh, recap of the Realm Awards ceremonies that came right in the middle of us recording this series. But uh, two episodes ago, we started this series. We did a trilogy of myths, and now we have four myths left. Almost uh, like C.S. Lewis wrote the series himself. He started with an initial trilogy. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader in linear order. And then he thought, well, I might be done. But then he came back for another four, uh, some of which go back into Narnia's history. And in those books, he actually started with a gritty reboot of sorts, uh, The Silver Chair, uh, which uh, almost feels like some other author. At first, it feels like some other author had come along and decided to take up the series and do it, give, give it the gritty reboot, you know, let's have less magic and more suffering and you know, more cold and chill. I love the silver chair though. And the last book that Lewis wrote is the last battle, which is the source of two of the myths that we're going to explore in this uh, continuing series, the top seven myths about the Chronicles of Narnia. So myth number four, Queen Susan fell away and will never return to Narnia again. Ooh, burn, sick burn. That's a big one. Yeah. 
that's uh, commonly debated on the internet. And so why not? We'll just take it up right now. We could have a whole episode just for this one. Uh, we could have done a seven-part series and then just made it the Narnia myth-busting podcast. Uh, this one comes near the end of The Last Battle, which everyone agrees is the final chronicle of Narnia. Aslan has finally come bounding into this now dystopian land of Narnia and starts to make all things new in a very unique and magical way. Several of the children from Narnia's past, uh, actually King Peter, King Edmund, and Queen Lucy, are pulled in along with other uh, heroes whom we've gotten to know over the series. And much virtual and real ink has been spilled asking why one of them is missing. Queen Susan is missing. And a lot of people really don't like the reason why she is. Zach, I actually have that quote from the book right here. It's uh, at the very end of the chapter, Through the Stable Door. It's when uh, King Tyrion, who's the current king of Narnia, the last king of Narnia, is wondering why he sees only three kings and queens from Narnia's ancient past. He asks, has not your majesty two sisters? Where is Queen Susan? And King Peter answers, my sister Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. Edmund goes on to explain that uh, Susan dismisses all of their talking about Narnia as children's games, funny games that we used to play when we were children. What does Susan prefer over those games? Jill says that Susan is interested in nothing nowadays except nylons and lipstick and invitations. She always was a jolly sight too keen on being grown up. And then an, an, uh, uh, actually a woman from Narnia's very ancient past says that uh, Susan actually isn't grown up. She says, I wish she would grow up. She wasted all her school time wanting to be the age she is now, and she'll waste all the rest of her life trying to stay that age. Her whole idea is to race on to the silliest time of one's life as quick as she can and then stop there as long as she can. And that's all that they say about it. That's all that we get about why Susan is no longer interested in Narnia. And several people, several uh, of Narnia's critics, including some feminists and some atheists, let's just call, call them what they are, what they identify as, uh, they do not like this part at all. Yeah, so one of the most famous quotes comes from Philip Pullman who wrote uh, what a lot of people call the anti-Narnia, His Dark Materials. Uh, you might be familiar with The Golden Compass. That was, uh, I believe, the first movie that came out in the series. Um, a little controversial, you know, a lot of talk of boycotting it or, or whatever, but... Uh, it failed pretty hard anyway. Had to get rebooted <laughs> as, a, as a streaming drama, I think. That's right. Which, uh, you know, not, not a big fan of boycotts. I, I think engage the ideas people have and, you know, decide whether or not you want to read it. Well, anyway, anyway, so Philip Pullman infamously condemns this part of the last battle. And he says, quote, this seems to me on the part of Lewis to reveal very weird, unconscious feelings about sexuality. It's a filthy thing to do. Susan is shut out from salvation because she is doing what every other child who has ever been born has done. She's beginning to sense the developing changes in her body and its effects on the opposite sex, end quote. And we have another honestly silly take uh, from a writer named Emily Wilson in the New Republic who wrote about this scene, quote, poor Susan cannot get into heaven because she starts wearing lipstick, end quote. And speaking of silly grownups, honestly, these are silly arguments. <laughs> that is not what Lewis said. Uh, the Pullman quote is particularly silly because it's all about sex to him. And the, remember the phrase, the, Zach, the, the meme phrase, I don't know, therefore aliens. Basically, we have a version of that. I don't know, therefore sex. Like, everything's <laughs> about sex. It's all about Susan's sexuality. And like, 
that's not what Lewis is talking about. Lewis is talking about the vanity, the, the, the silliness of being so concerned about this kind of trend chasing. It's a big idea in Lewis's thinking of people pursuing trends and trying to be grown up for its own sake rather than pursuing those things, if we do, for the sake of joy, for the sake of deepening your imagination and, of course, deepening your relationship to your creator. It's obvious when you actually read the quote, it's not really about makeup. It's not about lipstick or invitations or sex. Lewis was a fan of God's material world. He defended it. Uh, he was a fan of humans interacting with one another. Uh, you may as well say that oh, Lewis wouldn't have liked to go to the pub and talk with his friends. But of course, we know that he really did love that. He favored a good pint and great conversation with his colleagues in the Inklings group. Lewis is all about those goodness of God's created gifts and the things that people can do in, in, in for his glory. So here, it's not about Susan growing up. It's about the silliness that's associated with growing up. Only if you assume that this is the age where you've grown up, you've matured. What, Susan in her late teens, early 20s, maybe? Like, is this really the grand finale of the maturing process? Not at all. Polly says that this is the silliest time in one's life, and Susan just wants to stay there, uh, which is absurd. You have other decades, other mature experiences growing up past that age. And in fact, I was just reading uh, one of Lewis's essays the other day, which I do <laughs> tend to do regularly, especially if we have an episode like this coming up. Uh, Lewis is talking about how silly it is to act like you don't like the things that you love when you were children. Uh, he uses the example of, well, I may have really enjoyed this sweet treat when I was a child, and now maybe I like this other thing as an adult. But that doesn't, you know, it's not an exchange. You can add the pleasure, he says. Uh, you don't have to switch one out for the other. So. It's, it's Lewis being very direct about a big theme in his books and the fact that people literally say, oh, it's just that Susan is discovering her sexual sexuality or something, or she put on lipstick and she can't get to heaven. Like That is silly, and, and that is honestly a critique that reveals more about the speaker making it and the fact that they just did not get the point. Yeah, I mean, I, I really see in that just some eisegesis, just reading into it the issues that you care so much about that you just want to see everywhere. You know, it's just kind of a boogeyman sort of thing, but okay. So by the way, listener, if you if didn't hear our last episode about this or you're, you're new to the podcast, I have not read all of the Chronicles of Narnia. This so is a big old I, spoiler for you. Yeah. Sorry about right. that. No, no, no. It's, it's totally fine. I, I've heard this debate a lot. It's a podcasting job hazard. Though. Yeah, it is. So I, I'm trying to make sense of this for, uh, from an outsider, someone who is um, still new to the Narnia series. Uh, I've read the, the first two books, but not all of them. And what do I mean by the first two books? Well, what order are you supposed to read them in? Check out our last episode. <laughs> anyway, back to this. It, it seems to me, Stephen, it's, it's really not about Susan growing up as much as it is about her trying to take herself too seriously. Mm -hmm. You know, what, whatever age she's at or wants to be, it's, it's all about, like you said, chasing the trends and chasing what the world says you're supposed to be and, and just not enjoying the age you are. Or I also think of that Lewis quote where he says, you know, someday you will be old enough to read fairy tales again. And when I was a when I became a man, I put away childish things like being embarrassed about reading fairy tales. And so, you know, Lewis is such a kid at heart. He has that, just that whimsical nature about him. You know, he, he just didn't take himself that seriously like so many people are prone to do. And I have a really great example of this, Stephen. My own grandmother, Granny, 
Um, may she rest in peace. She passed away a year ago and her whole life, she called herself 21. <laughs> so this was always the joke that, uh, whatever, uh, every birthday she had, she's like, I'm turning 21 this year. And you know, and she acted young her whole life. My grandfather passed away, uh, years before my grandma did. And so they got them like a dual headstone. And so they put uh, pops's birthday on there is you know, the date and the year. And they said, uh, okay, Mrs. Russell, what would you like for your date? And she said, it's, you know, March 11th. And they're like, okay, well, what year, what, what year, Mrs. Russell? <laughs> and she just didn't answer. Wow. And they're like, they're like, okay, I guess we won't put the year. And then an, another guy came in and said, well, you have to put a year. And she said, why? <laughs> and I just love that, that she didn't care about how old she was. I mean, it was like a joke that, you know, she's forever young, forever 21, but uh, she was always that way that she did not take herself seriously. And that's what we loved about her. So I, I really think that is the lesson here in that don't scorn childhood and don't don't scorn just the innocence of childhood what i also find hilarious here is that the things that susan is chasing right now are so stereotypically girly and feminine and oddly enough i think that now this is a bit dangerous to suggest but it could be that now women might also see that as frivolous and silly and as if uh, susan ought to be defined by lipsticks and gossip and parties and some of those stereotypical 50s teenager type things it could seem very retro and a bit uh, over traditional now so maybe now that we're a few generations distant from this picture uh, we can look back and they go yeah that's 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 pretty vain uh, that's pretty vapid uh, an endless chasing after the wind but i also noticed something else about the two quotes uh, that we read earlier uh, from the the critics who are apparently very self-serious themselves and have totally missed the point Pullman says Susan is shut out from salvation. And uh, Wilson says, poor Susan cannot get into heaven. Is that what's going on here? Not at all. Only if you assume that Narnia is an allegory and that not going to Narnia now equals heaven or salvation, would you assume that this is some sort of a symbol for uh, Susan's eternal condemnation? That's not what's going on here. If it were, then we'd have a problem later on with uh, Emmeth, who seems to get into. Narnia, despite never believing in Aslan uh, during his earthly life. Uh, we'll get to that myth in a moment here. But that's not how Narnia works. It's not an allegory. We'll get into that as well. Uh, there's not a one to one correspondence. Uh, they, they've totally just assumed eisegesis, like you said, they've projected their own interpretation on here. This equals going to heaven or getting saved. No, no, that's, that's not how you book. That's not how you Narnia. <laughs> Aslan even says, though, even I believe in the first book, he says, once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king, a king or, or queen, queen in Narnia. Narnia. Yeah. Anything that's going on here has to be read in that light. If you respect Lewis's right to set his own canon, uh, whatever your view on whether a Christian who has professed faith in this world can fall away. The scripture does say that in some sense you can taste the heavenly gift and therein lies the mystery and yet fall away. But Aslan promises if you're a queen of Narnia, you're a queen for life. And Susan was a legitimate queen. She is locked in. And I would say, just based on Lewis's own internal logic, before we ask him himself, as we will, uh, this is where we realize that nothing here contradicts Aslan's promise. Narnia's heroes, or even the kings and queens, are never perfect. In the last battle, 
uh, Susan makes this big mistake, but we read actually in the horse and his boy of the kings and queens during the golden age also making mistakes. Now, Susan makes a mistake there, uh, assuming the best of an evil ruler, and they're trying to be diplomatic with a neighboring nation. Of course, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund fell away. He was a traitor. He almost turned his family into the White Witch, and yet Aslan forgives him, dies for him, and Edmund becomes a king for life, King Edmund the Just. And all of them in Prince Caspian uh, disbelieve that Aslan is actually there, uh, except for Lucy. And even she struggles with trying to get the others to see. And then in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lucy struggles with doubts and self-image problems. It's actually a very modern scene where she's wondering what her friends think about her and whether or not Susan is more beautiful than her. So Susan's journey here, it's not over just because this is the last book. Uh, we could easily guess that there's more to be written there. But we actually don't have to guess because it turns out that Lewis himself definitively for one reader answered the question about Susan. Yeah, I really like this letter from um, the 60s. So Lewis says, quote, dear Pauline Bannister, I could not write that story about Susan's future myself. Not that I have no hope of Susan's ever getting to Aslan's country, but because I have a feeling that the story of her journey would be longer and more like a grown up novel than I wanted to write but I may be mistaken. Why not try it yourself? End quote. And so that's from the collected letters of C.S. Lewis. Then we'll have that link in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I love this, that Lewis literally asked his reader to write some fan fiction. Why not try it yourself? And, uh, you know, th this is way before fan fiction becomes this whole huge thing that it is now. But it's pretty clear, I think, from this quote, Stephen, that Lewis believes Susan will someday return to Narnia. There's just a story that hasn't been written yet, and he just leaves it open in your imagination. And yet, why did Lewis include it here then? I mean, apart from the usual reasons of he just felt that that was a natural development, it is such a sour note in the midst of this wonder. And yet, later on, we also see uh, that idea echoed even more. If you want to talk about creatures not having salvation or not getting to heaven, then Susan's tale here, uh, stopped partway through, is not actually about that. What we see, as we'll note later, is that the creatures rush up to the door and have different responses to Aslan. There's your salvation heaven allegory if you're looking for it, but Susan is not that. So why is this here? I think it is a very careful warning to readers don't be like Susan. Like if you get older and you stop reading uh, Narnia, sure, but don't lose that kind of wonder. Please don't fall into that same trap of wanting to get stuck at the silliest time of your life uh, where you're obsessed with appearances and clicks and the in crowd and all of those things. There are wonders and beauties that are far weightier than all of that sort of thing. There's good mixed up in those, obviously, social circles and dress and all of that are, are can be very good gifts, uh, but to get obsessed with them is to miss the point of why God has given us those gifts in the first place. That's great. Well, let's go to myth number three, which is that Emmeth in the last battle reveals that C.S. Lewis was a universalist. Okay, so I, I have heard this one before, Stephen. Something that my one of my friends, uh, my friend Matt, helped me see at the outset is that Lewis was not an American evangelical. So no. he he does he doesn't think about a lot of this stuff the same way we would, and so right right away that helped me understand. Okay, th there's going to be some differences of opinion anyway, but I still think this is a myth. Correct? It is. Now that doesn't mean that Lewis believed everything super biblical 
about who gets saved, who goes to heaven, and how. As we'll see, Lewis, at least in his speculative life, wanted to allow a possible third category for people who were really, really, really good, the noble heathen, as it were, and yet could somehow enter the kingdom by exception. He at least flirts with this idea, and there may be a shade of it here. But uh, again, this is pretty complex. We could do a whole episode about it. The upshot of it is, is that in the same book, The Last Battle, pretty soon after this scene, I believe, our heroes from Earth, uh, who have been kings and queens of Narnia, or at least have gone to Narnia once or twice, they move on into this world of the stable, uh, where there's a war in the real Narnia outside the stable, but inside the stable, it's like the TARDIS. The, uh, the inside is uh, bigger than the outside. And it's this paradise-type world. And they find a man named Emmeth, who is a soldier of the enemy. He is a Kalorman. Uh, we met him earlier. It gets a bit complicated to recount the whole plot, but uh, basically Emmeth proved himself a true servant of that evil empire, and yet very noble. And he wanted to go inside the stable to prove something. Once inside the stable, though, Emmeth doesn't find what he's looking for. He doesn't find the god, the false god that he has served all his life. But instead, Aslan meets Emmeth and welcomes him into this paradise. Now, again, we're not told that the paradise equals heaven or that Emmeth has been saved, as it were. But Aslan is positive about Emmeth. And Aslan directly says that all of Emmeth's good service to a false god named Tash, Aslan reckons as good service done to him. Emmeth is confused, but the important thing to note here is that Emmeth, once he meets the lion, is struck with a posture of repentance. Emmeth realizes that he has done all these good things in service to a false god and falls before Aslan. There is not a stroke of rebellion or resistance or resentment in Emmeth once he sees Aslan. And in that moment, I would say that if you're going to talk about salvation, Emmeth has been saved. But it is an in-between state in between uh, the real world of Narnia and the paradise afterworld of Narnia. Not quite uh, that Emmeth has gone to heaven, you know, and is ignoring Aslan is just getting there uh, by the skin of his teeth because he had some good motivations. Anyway, some Christians take that and they say, oh, this means C.S. Lewis was a universalist. He thought that all uh, non-Christians would go to heaven because after all, a non-Narnian here goes to heaven. Uh, despite having served a false god all of his life and not having uh, believed in Aslan all of his life. Okay, yeah, th this is really complex. Yeah, it, if we assume for a second this was not universalism, what I see going on here is a lot of what we see in Acts. So starting with Acts 10, and there's Cornelius. It says Cornelius was a very devout man. It doesn't really say devout to which god, but... God sends an angel to him to tell him to go find Peter, and then sends an angel to Peter to be ready to meet Cornelius, and then Cornelius hears the gospel, and he and his whole family are saved. And so it, it, that's kind of that first example of that noble, uh, what would you call it, a noble pagan that I can see in the Bible. But, but also, I, I feel like in Acts 17, when Paul goes to Athens, this is one of my favorite passages uh, in the whole Bible. In Acts 17, 26, 27, he says, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. He did this so that men would reach out to him and perhaps find him, for he is not far from each one of us. So God has arranged things in such a way that people 
can find him now again. We see with we see with Cornelius the way they found him was through Christ. So Christ is the door. You know, he said, "I'm I'm the gate for the sheep. I am the way. He's the only way to the Father." I have to be careful here, but I feel like there are things in different cultures that point people to Christ. Okay, one of my favorite examples of this is in the Chinese language. The Chinese word for righteousness, the the more ancient or the more traditional form of that word is two parts. The, there's a part on the top and the part on the bottom. The part on the top is the word for lamb or ram. And the part on the bottom is the word me. So righteousness is a lamb over me. I've talked to uh, students from China uh, all about this. And I'm like, look, I, I don't know why. I, I don't know your language. I, I don't know why that is that way. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I still think that is a pretty cool uh, picture of what the gospel is. And look, you know, it's not far from you. Like it says in Acts 17, you are not far from Christ. It, here, here it is in your own language, in your own culture, this picture and how it got there. I, I'm not going to debate, but I, I see that happening here with Emmett. Now, again, Tash is not Aslan, so it, it kind of breaks down at some point, but he had that right impulse, and it it sent him to there. There's a whole book about this by Don Richardson uh, called Peace Child, mm-hmm. where he meets this tribe that has this idea that the only way to solve a dispute between two warring tribes is for a child from one tribe to be given to the other tribe. And it's sort of like a sacrifice, but the child isn't killed. The child stays alive, but, but you know, is effectively dead to the first tribe. And, and that was kind of the aha moment, uh, I believe for him or this missionary that was reaching this tribe to say, Hey, Jesus is the peace child. And they're like, you know, then the light bulb went off. So I, I see something like that at work here and that God uses the circumstances, the, the place and time where people are born to draw him, to draw them to himself. As we know, that's through Jesus. You know, in the, in the end, Emmett doesn't meet Tash. He meets Aslan. Right. So, and Aslan specifically go. says that it is a lie what they've been telling on the other side of the stable. Uh, huh. The Kalormans had an invasion planned along with a Narnian traitor. Uh, big spoilers here, of course. But the big lie that they came up with was that Aslan and Tash are the same. Tash is this devilish entity uh, whom uh, we have seen the Kalormans worship in the, uh, the actually the horse and his boy. And apparently they've been doing this for centuries. And Tash actually makes an appearance in the last battle. He, he's a physical being, but we're not told you know, whether uh, Tash is an enemy of Aslan or he's just sort of all on his own. But Aslan is very clear. No, we are not the same. It is a lie to say that we are the same. Uh, he is nothing like me. I noticed though, Zach, in um, X10, it does say that Cornelius, just to clarify, it does say that Cornelius feared God. Uh, he mm-hmm. was a centurion though. So he was not a native Jew as far as we know. Uh, he says he, uh, he says in uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 1, he was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So we have here a noble man who had at least converted to Judaism or a form of that and who was a noble pagan, but he was trying to serve God. But we know that especially after Christ, Christ was the fulfillment of the law. There are multiple portions in Acts where the apostles come upon a few uh, communities of people 
there was a group of disciples of John the Baptist, and they had not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. So they needed the rest. There's some weird in-between stages there where they were meeting good, devout, God-fearing people and then getting them caught up to speed uh, with what they had missed. Uh, because after all, there's no uh, technology to share the news everywhere. I think the better comparison is with Acts 17, where you have noble pagans. Uh, that doesn't mean they're going to heaven. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're somehow in the kingdom because the Apostle Paul still had to arrive and point out what they had gotten wrong. You guys are worshiping an unknown God. I'm going to proclaim what you mean. I would compare that then, not that it's an allegory or that Lewis was thinking of Acts 17 when he wrote this, but that is a little bit closer to Emeth. Emeth is serving an unknown God, and yet despite the false religion in which he's been raised, uh, he has been trying to do what's right all along. And so in some common grace way, he has done good, but it still required direct intervention by Aslan, pulling him into this hypothetical fantasy in between place between Aslan's country and between old Narnia. Ameth did not die. He passed through the stable door and then Aslan appeared and had to give him a direct revelation. And yet Aslan also praised what he had done that was good uh, in this life. Yeah, well, and, and I could think too of, of people I know personally from the Middle East that have had dreams and visions of Jesus. I was just thinking of that, which is yeah. doubly interesting considering that Lewis drew from some of the fantasy Arabia uh, mythos, sometimes infamously, in order to create the culture of Kalorman. Right. And then, you know, we're told by Jesus in John, I think John 14 or John 17, where he says, I'll send my Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so, he is already at work in the work. So just talking about the real world now, the Holy Spirit is is at work drawing people to Christ. And so, yeah, I, I have personally met people where this has happened, where just out of the blue, they have had a dream of Jesus. I actually know of this uh, student from India who had this dream where he's walking in this long hallway with all these doors, and he hears a voice that sa uh, says, I'm God, do you want to see me? And, it, and the student said, yes. And he opens a door and Jesus is standing behind the door. So just crazy kind of stuff like that. If we say that God created all peoples, all nations, he's the God of the whole world, then, then of course he knows for each culture how to meet them where they are and draw them to Christ in a way that makes sense to them, you know, because Jesus is not a Western religion. And I think that's where a lot of people get things wrong. They think, well, how in the world are people, you know, supposed to understand Jesus if they don't speak English or they're not from America? And it's like, well, he's not from America. He's not an English speaker. He he spoke Aramaic and he spoke Hebrew. But more importantly, he's he's the God of all nations. Okay, so here's this quote from Philip Pugh, who summarized Lewis, is saying, "Quote: One has to remember when reading Lewis that he is at heart a medievalist, even if his theology is basically Anglican." When reading medieval works like Dante's Divine Comedy, which had a profound effect on Lewis, we found that the noble pagans like Socrates, Plato, and Virgil are placed in a sort of limbo where they are not suffering and yet there is no light. I think Lewis has something of like this in mind, taking some cues from George MacDonald to embellish it, but not taking it to MacDonald's universalist extreme. He is saying that Emmeth had Tash and Aslan confused, so he confused Tash and Aslan because of his cultural background. I disagree, but it's not as bad as many would think, end quote. So what do, what do you think of this quote, Stephen? 
Yeah, that was actually, uh, uh, Philip was a member of Narnia Web, uh, and I think we were having a forum discussion about this uh, very topic in 2008. So I thought that was a good way to summarize exactly where Lewis was coming from. Lewis, as you said, did not come from a background like ours. He was a medievalist. He studied medieval literature. He studied medieval languages. So all of that was in his DNA, including some early speculation about what do we do with all the noble pagans around us. So you know, there's an idea alongside uh, other more biblical ideas in church history uh, that there could be some other option. I do not say that's biblical, but it is not universalism and it's not a denial of the doctrine of hell. Uh, Lewis specifically defended the doctrine of hell in his nonfiction. Uh, in Mere Christianity, he defended it. In The Problem of Pain, he defended it. Uh, he actually said, quote, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than the doctrine of hell if it lay in my power, but it has the full support of scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. End quote. Uh, Lewis believed that sinners go to hell, tragically, but truly. In, uh, in the way that God has chosen to run the universe, uh, that is justice. And Lewis affirmed that. My pastor just this past Sunday read that quote. I, I think it's a good way to, to understand how Lewis thought about this. Yeah, that, that's always an ongoing discussion today. My pastor said, look, it's not that God sends innocent people to hell. He sends the wicked to hell. And you know how we define wicked is, is probably is the bigger problem. I can relate to this quote, Stephen. This is a tough thing to talk about. It is one of those things that it makes you uncomfortable. And I, I have openly said this, look, if, if I didn't have to believe in hell, I wouldn't. It, it's not that I want to believe in this doctrine in a sense, like it, it's uncomfortable. I understand what's going on. And I think Lewis talks about this. My, my pastor talked about this, how, well, what if, if people don't want to spend eternity with Jesus, then what is God supposed to do with them? You know, that, that's how I, I, I think is the simplest way to look at it. We've talked to our, our kids about this, that, you know, when they, when they have friends or whatever that don't believe in Jesus, they're like, well, what's going to happen to them when they get old? And we say, well, hey, look, maybe you're the person in their life to share the gospel with them. But at the end of the day, heaven is not about good people and bad people. Heaven is about people that want to be with Jesus and that love him. So if, if, if people don't want to be with him, well, God respects that. Now, okay, we're, we're going to very quickly get into free will and predestination here. But I, I think that's the simplest way because Jesus in Matthew 7, when he is sending people away from him at the judgment, he says, away from me, I never knew you. So it's all about, do you know Jesus? Do you, do you personally know him? But what, what do you think about that Lewis quote though, Stephen? Well, Lewis is doing his best. And I think in a way that is empathetic to most of us to wrestle with that doctrine. He's like, well, I'd get rid of it if I could. And, and Lewis, I think, does reveal some wishful thinking, which is what that is. You know, we wish there was some way to reconcile the, the paradox. Evil people must be punished. You know, ev everybody wants Hitler to go to hell, but we don't want our nice next door neighbor to. And yet that is, uh, pains me to say it, but it is a shortcoming. In our view, we cannot see the universe as God sees it. God is the creator. He is sovereign over it completely. We don't know what options he may have for the difficult cases like noble pagans or our really nice neighbors or those who are never heard of Jesus, but we do know what he has revealed. There is only one way and it is through Jesus. And you've got to know the gospel. You've got in some way to accept the gospel uh, in order to 
become like Jesus in order to be saved and to enter that kingdom. Those things, though, Lewis does affirm. He works through them, he speculates, but ultimately he comes down on the biblical side. Where we seem to see a contradiction uh, in Lewis's fiction, uh, we need to make sure we don't do like Philip Pullman did or our other writer did up there where they say, oh, this is about salvation, this is about heaven. No, no, the fiction has to be read in light of the nonfiction, just as in reality. Lewis's nonfiction should interpret his fiction and at least one other of his books actually explores uh, heaven versus hell. It's the, the Great Divorce, which is actually fiction, although it has a lot of nonfiction ideas in there. He actually has uh, an imagined scenario in which people leave this environment that is like hell, which is like this uh, terribly disgusting, sprawling city where everyone just kind of bitterly deals with one another and hates each other and squabbles. Uh, there's no fire or any of that, and some of the characters actually... Uh, lampshade that a little bit but some people get on a bus and then just for some reason they go up to this paradise and yet with a few exceptions there's no way they can get in they're just too self-absorbed they're too selfish their natures have not been changed so lewis is speculating hey even if you were in hell and could somehow go to this paradise type place that is like heaven it would be too solid for you you would be a ghost you would be nothing against this heavy wonderful uh, weighty material world and yet lewis says i'm i'm making speculation here he's saying this is more of a metaphor i'm not making any uh weird uh, uh claims about the afterlife i'm just uh, doing some imagined uh, scenarios going back to something you and i've talked about elsewhere th this whole idea of, of people being in hell and it, it being uncomfortable i think we can kid ourselves into thinking that oh we're we're being really really loving by avoiding this topic or or soft pedaling it or whatever and my pastor had a gr the best quote about this on sunday he said the most loving person in human history talked about hell more than anyone else <laughs> so he and just very really seriously threw, mm -hmm. yeah he just really threw down right there like are, are you really more loving than jesus you know this is kind of what you and i've talked about separately and uh man that that is a great challenge to think about that if the reason Jesus talked about it was because he was loving. He wanted to wake people up to how serious it is. So, you know, that that's just something to walk away with. So because of Lewis, including teachings about hell very clearly in his other books, I, I don't think he's teaching universalism. So so what is he possibly teaching here? He's possibly, well, not I wouldn't say teaching, but he is speculating because, again, Narnia is not our world. There's no one-to-one -one correspondences except possibly, you know, obviously, actually, Aslan being a supposal of Jesus operating in this world. There's a reference to the emperor beyond the sea, which is, you know, basically an analog to the father. And the moral policy is basically the same as this world. Yet we don't see uh, analogs to salvation in the church and the Bible. There's no book of Aslan that all the characters have to read. So some of the exact operations of salvation in Narnia are different. So take that into account when you realize that Lewis here is using this as an opportunity to speculate about what we might call inclusivism or soft inclusivism. Uh, we alluded to that earlier, and that's the idea that maybe some people get into the kingdom even if they've never heard of Jesus. You know, what if it is a person like Cornelius who didn't experience angelic intervention? You know, some some Christians will build maybe a bit too much speculation on the idea that Old Testament saints like Abraham or David 
they're obviously in the kingdom, even though they didn't hear of Jesus. I, I think a better Christian theology would say that they get in by anticipating their Redeemer, uh, anticipating that fulfillment of all the law uh, that God had been teaching them. That does get really speculative, and the worst thing we could do with that speculation would be to fail to take evangelism seriously. Do not hang back from witnessing to your neighbor or proclaiming the gospel overtly where you need to out of some wishful thinking that the Holy Spirit will just do that on his own. Uh, Zach, you mentioned earlier the whole free will thing. I think anybody, regardless of your take on free will, could fall into that. If you want to respect someone's free will, oh, well, you know, maybe God will just get them saved and I don't have to do anything that could be socially awkward. Uh, but if you're like a Calvinist or you believe in predestination, uh, rather infamously and to the mockery of many internet cartoonists, uh, some of them will say, you know, hey, you know, God's predestined whomever he wills and he's just going to do that apart from anything I can do. Uh, which is silly. That is that is not what Scripture teaches. Even if yeah, God that's is, what Hudson Taylor was was it Hudson Taylor was told that directly. Uh, may have been William Carey. That's the uh, apocryphal quote. Yeah, if God right. if God wants to save the heathens, He'll do that without your help. <laughs> uh, which is an overt denial of the Great Commission, which is absurd. I believe God does operate that way that He does predestine people, but He also predestines the means, and we get to participate in His plan. Uh, what a joyous task that we have been given. So. You know, any speculation should not overthrow that. You know, we don't know about what about little children who have died you know, before they're even conscious of such things or folks with mental challenges like they can get some really thorny stuff. But here we're just talking about a type of character who is a noble pagan who's serving the wrong God, but doing good things to serve him. And we can't make this an apologetics episode about you know, universalism or inclusivism. But suffice it to say, we are not universalist here. I would suggest we are also not inclusivistic. It'd be nice, but we're not told anything about that in Scripture. We're always encouraged in the opposite directions by the very words of Christ. And yet, I would point out again that even here, Lewis is not saying that Emmeth gets to heaven. Emmeth meets Aslan, and then he has to sit there for a while and just think about that. Emmeth is not shown going further up and further in with our heroes, the true Narnians who do believe in Aslan and are conscious of their faith in him. Further up and further in is the, is the phrase that the characters shout as they are moving through this newly created, even more magical land of Narnia without sin or suffering or death, and they arrive at Aslan's country. Emmeth doesn't join them. I think a movie version of this would probably have him join them, but Lewis is very careful to leave Emmeth behind, thinking about his life choices. <laughs> Aslan says Aslan and Tash, his uh, enemy, the devil-like figure, they're not the same. And most importantly, though, as I mentioned, there's a scene at Aslan's door. It's literally a door to the stable. And outside, Aslan makes an end for the land of Narnia. It's completely wasted. There is a, a literal apocalypse going out outside. And Father Time crushes the sun and everything. And then somehow all these creatures rush up to the door. And some come through the door and into Aslan's country because they look on the face of Aslan and love him. And others look at Aslan's face and do not love him. They then lose their ability for rational thought because creatures in Narnia can talk. And if they do not uh, put their faith in Aslan, then they lose that ability. And Lewis has them turn aside into darkness. And Lewis specifically says, I don't know what became of them. But I think we pretty well know that in mm. some way they are lost, even in Narnia's salvation mechanics, if you want to call it that. Not all are saved. 
but salvation still operates differently in Narnia anyway. So just be careful when we're reading the fiction, make sure that we read it in light of the nonfiction in the Bible and any other story. Okay, so that leads us to myth number two. The Chronicles portray simple allegories for Jesus, Satan, and others. All right, well, this is what I always thought, that Narnia was just one big, giant metaphor. So you're shaking your head, so uh, tell me what you think here. Yeah, this is the one that we set up a, a bit admittedly snarky at the beginning of this episode. And I think every Christian who discovers Narnia needs to go through this phase. I'm not going to make fun of anybody who's still there or who once thought this because it's way better. It's way better than saying, oh, no, it's pagan. Uh, This is of the devil. Let's not read fantasy at all. Like, I'd much rather, given the choice, that someone say, oh, it's okay because it's allegory. It, however, is not allegory. And as good readers who want to respect the word of God, for the author's intentions when we read it, and we want to respect our neighbor's words and their intentions when we read them, uh, we need to do the same thing with Lewis. So uh, it is time that we move past the whole, the Chronicles of Narnia are okay because they're, they, they've got allegories in them. Don't want to cite a whole lot of specific examples, but one quote I've kept on reserve in some of my articles at Spec Faith and elsewhere, and it's worth uh, bearing uh, through at length, Uh, This person, uh, uh, God bless them. They're doing their best with what they got. uh, But I think they do need to to move down the hall to the 201 level here. (laughs) In the remedial class, this person says, quote, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is rich in symbolism. The manor home wherein the four children discover the wardrobe is the home of Professor Diggory Kirk, the very same Diggory who witnessed the creation of Narnia in The Magician's Nephew. The manor of Professor Kirk is symbolic of the church. The neglected wardrobe in the attic symbolizes the Bible through which we discover God's will. The eldest boy, Peter, later the high king, has a role similar to that of the apostle Peter. Susan and Lucy are much like Mary and Martha, the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. Additionally, Lucy parallels John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, one of the most dedicated of Christ's followers. Edmund is analogous to Saul, the persecutor of the first Christians who who became the great missionary Paul. A little later, and they say, Susan obtains a horn to summon help and a bow and arrows. These symbolize her ministry of prayer, including imprecatory prayer, summoning help and being used of the Lord to defend the righteous against the wicked. And finally, a little later, the first time that Aslan is seen is as he comes out of the pavilion tent. This symbolizes the tabernacle of God's presence, end quote. So if you weren't keeping track, uh, the one-to-one correspondences you need to know are that Professor Kirk's mansion equals the church. The wardrobe equals the Bible. Peter equals Peter. That's easy. Susan and Lizzie equal Mary and Martha. Edmund equals Paul. Uh, Susan's horn equals prayer. Okay. Again, I I love it. A A for effort. That's great. I really don't want to be snarky here, but boo. (laughs) Please don't keep this as a grown up. This is not how you story. This is not how you Narnia. This is not how you C.S. Lewis. Use this as a jumping off point to understand that stories have value in and of themselves without making everything into, oh, this really means something else, something more spiritual. I mean, this is the kind of thing I did when The the Matrix came out. So I I was a pretty new Christian, and I actually was going through a phase where I didn't really want to watch any R-rated, violent movies, whatever. And my friend Darren said, you really should see the matrix. It's a giant allegory of Christianity. And I'm like, what? 
like I'd never heard of something like that before. And I went and watched it and I just found all these connections and even like made little pictures that I <laughs> taped up on my wall. I was like so into it. And then come to find out later, the directors weren't Christian. It was just, you know, they, it was just a big mishmash of things. So I can relate to this. Okay. I, I can relate to this trying to find the gospel everywhere. And because, you know, Lewis is a Christian, so it, it's permeating everything he creates. But I, I think you're right, Stephen, in that Narnia is not the Pilgrim's Progress where everything in the Pilgrim's Progress is literally a metaphor, if I can say it that way. Everything is intended as a symbol or with a, a certain meaning, but Narnia is a story first. It's a narrative. It's fiction. It's, it's a fairy tale. It's not meant to directly correlate to something in our world. I like how you said it. It's like, the 101 level versus the 201 level. You know, the 101 level would be the Pilgrim's Progress or maybe Dante's Inferno. Narnia is at the 201 or 301 level that it's, there's a lot more going on. And yes, we, we think of parallels in our own lives. Like I, I told you last time in our part one of this, ep- this series that I relate entirely to Peter in, in the movie Prince Caspian where he says, we've waited for Aslan long enough. And I, man, that, that always gets me because I'm like, gosh, that's, that's so much how I am. And unfortunately, sometimes I just think I've, I've waited long enough. I'm on my own now. So I, I look at it that way. It's like, how do I relate to them? Not necessarily how does Peter in Narnia relate to Peter in the Bible? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know. I, I just don't think it's meant to be like that. I think it's meant to, to reach you on a more personal level. Oh, definitely. And, and must credit uh, Zachary Russell for the the metaphor of the classroom. That one is a metaphor. See, the classroom actually symbolizes a stage of thinking, and the <laughs> stage imagery actually symbolizes the place that you are in thinking, and the place symbolizes... You, you can just go on and on about symbolisms. <laughs> the fact is that we use these in common speech all the time, and they are not as super special as we might think that they are. Allegory is not some super mystical, magical mode of communication uh, whereby we can find the secret knowledge and we unlock everything. Unfortunately, there is a long tradition, even in biblical interpretation. Uh, some blame this on uh, origin uh, and some uh, other modes of thinking uh, going back through church history of reading the Bible, like, for example, reading the parable of the Good Samaritan. And instead of reading that for Jesus' straightforward meaning, that is answering the question, who is my neighbor, uh, you read it trying to find out what equals what. Uh, the priest and the Levite, those are pretty easy. You know, that's the law and the prophets or something like that. Uh, but the Samaritan is true Israel and the, you know, two coins he gave to the innkeeper equals this and the road to Jericho or wherever it is equals that. And that is not the point of the parable. That's not how you read a parable. Uh, Jesus didn't say to read it like that. And you can imagine the bad stuff that could happen if you reduced it to uh, those types of interpretations, reading other Old Testament narratives. Some classic liberals do that with the miracle narratives. Oh, the Red Sea, well, this actually symbolizes this. And the pillar of fire, that wasn't real, but it actually symbolizes this. And you get into some Gnostic type stuff there. It's like, it's not the meaning right in front of you, but the super secret meaning. And then we go back to the room where we discover uh, what that actually means in the smoke-filled back room where it happens. You need to read stories more straightforwardly. And uh, I've been doing this for a while, so it kind of feels like low-hanging fruit. 
But even before you get to what Lewis said about it, Narnia just doesn't operate that way. Few stories operate that way. And if you grew up with Pilgrim's Progress and you think that that's typical, it is one genre among many. Uh, it's not the most spiritual genre to portray an, an allegory. And uh, by the way, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, I, I don't actually think that that's the best way to communicate truth. The Chronicles of Narnia are not like Pilgrim's Progress. Okay, so, but are Susan and Lucy like the women of the Bible? Okay, yeah, a little. I mean, God makes women and Susan and Lucy are young women. So there's your connection, but start by comparing them then maybe to the women you see around you, you know, in your family or in your, in your life at your church, for example, that's the immediate point of comparison. There is not jumping to the specific examples in scripture, but what does this say about the real world that God has also made into which he's put his common grace that match what we see in the Chronicles, uh, the white witch is the white witch, the devil. Well, then we get Tash later on. We've already talked about him. Is Tash the devil? Well, they're both evil, and they're evil tyrants in the world, in some ways patterned after Satan. Uh, you can compare it to the devil. You can compare it with uh, Hitler. You compare it with Stalin, any of the super bad guys. Your sure. least favorite politician. Yeah, at least you know politician X that we're not going to name here because we're not going to get into that. <laughs> like, yeah, like, they're like them, you know? Voldemort is like, you know, the bad presidential candidate. You know, J.K. Rowling was doing that a while back, I think. Uh, yeah, just the one-to-one -one stuff takes away from the genuine power of the story to be about more things than just that one thing, that one spiritual thing. Like Susan's bow and arrow being about prayer. Like, that's just so spiritual. It's like, it, it's a bow and arrow. It's a bow and arrow first in this world. Susan has a magic horn. Maybe that is about like the ram's horn that you blow the shofar or something. Like, no, it's first a magic horn and it's cool because it's a magic horn. Don't flatten the story. Don't make imagination subservient to practical reality and the spiritual things. Edmund too. He isn't just like the apostle Paul. He's like any sinner who repents. Don't just say, oh, he's like Paul. Like, I might read that and then think, oh, Edmund is like Paul. But why not see a little of myself in Edmund? Why not see other people that I know in Edmund? The same for yeah. Peter, uh, the same for Susan, and the same for Lucy, who's a normal child. She's uh, often innocent, and yet she is flawed as uh, she practices that childlike faith that Jesus encouraged. But it's not an analogy. It's a comparison. Yes, Narnia does relate to our world. It's not this pristine uh, a fine China story that you can't touch, that you can't come out and, you know, you can't bring it out and play with the real world components. Uh, but it's not some super mystical secret formula where you unlock it and just compare it to disciplines like prayer and baptism. The prayer and the baptism and all that, even the reading of God's word, those are the practical tools in service of uh, cleaning up or transforming our view of gifts like stories, like Narnia. Those are the things that are a means to this end, but they're more important, of course. And I actually mm -hmm. think of the Apostle Paul in First Timothy, where he's saying that God's good gifts are made holy through the word and through prayer. Don't reverse that. That's how I see that. The, the best answer to this whole allegory first, allegory more spiritual uh, <laughs> myth, which is almost, by the way, almost the top myth about the Chronicles of Narnia. But we've got one more that I think is uh, even more prevalent. Yeah, I, I think the the part about the bow and arrow and the horn, what they represent. I mean, that I think that's our reading Ephesians six into Narnia that, Oh, it's this whole thing is a, an analogy for the 
analogy of the armor of God in Ephesians 6. And so I, I think we can get really trapped there. And, you know, Lewis addressed this directly. And the, the, here's a great quote for him where he says, quote, some people seem to think that I began by asking myself how I could say something about Christianity to children, then fixed on the fairy tale as an instrument, then collected information about child psychology and decided what age group I'd write for, then drew up a list of basic Christian truths, hammered out allegories to embody them. This is all pure moonshine. I couldn't write that way at all. Everything began with images, a fawn carrying an umbrella, a queen on a sledge, a magnificent lion. First, there wasn't even anything Christian about them. That element pushed itself in of its own accord. End quote. Well, there you go. <laughs> That's pretty clear. He didn't intend it that way. It just, his Christian faith infused what he wrote, but, but that he, you gotta, you don't want to put the uh, cart before the horse here. Yeah. Even now you have uh, some books that seem to go according to this strategy uh, that uh, they may, their authors may think that fairy tales are a good way to communicate these biblical truths. And then you get the very clear to see moral or the allegory at the end. Some of those work pretty well. And I'm actually uh, one of the persons who doesn't spend a lifetime yelling about preachy Christian fiction and how bad it is, I'm more likely to say that if that fiction is feeling preachy, it's probably because it's a bad sermon and not just because it's a sermon at all. I've heard sermons that felt really preachy just because they were corny and full of platitudes uh, rather than being based on the scripture. Lots of people use this quote and others from Lewis about the organic process of creation, uh, the fact that if you're living in God's world, enjoying God's truths and beauties and discerning the uglinesses and lies, uh, then you're going to be the type of person who cannot help but embed the Christian element into these naturally occurring uh, images like this, the works of imagination, where Lewis came up with the images first. Uh, he didn't uh, fetch the images as part of a, a specific targeted effort to reach children with biblical lessons. I don't think that means it's wrong to try to target children with biblical lessons using images, but it's going to be more effective and it's going to last longer if the process is more natural and more organic like this. Uh, this is about living out life as an imitator of God as creator and then drawing that Great Commission call into it uh, rather than only focusing on the Great Commission and then making everything into a tool uh, to communicate stuff through allegory, uh, which itself is uh, not how Scripture uh, constantly acts anyway. God performs his story in history using concrete objects and places with dates and stuff you can dig up. If you turn everything into the, sort of this ghostly literary illusion, uh, then you're moving a little bit distant from God's world. You're moving even away from the idea that Jesus was and is incarnate. Uh, Jesus is not an allegory of God's presence among men. He is actually God dwelling among men, Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, and as uh, <laughs> even the new heavens and new earth, while there may be uh, symbols in the communication about uh, heaven touching down to earth in Revelation 21, like I, I think it would be wrong to reduce that to all just an allegory for something. Um, I think it's describing a very real truth. I am a big believer in personal evangelism emphasis on the person i don't really care for movies and books and stories that do all the work for me i like the kinds of stories that that give me an opportunity and, and someone else to have a conversation 
you know, where, where the story is not doing all the work for us. There's a uh, screenplay for a short film I wrote about 10 years ago, Stephen, and it's, it's an allegory of substitutionary atonement. But you can watch this short film and just enjoy it as this sort of romantic comedy. We got a comment on this film where someone said, oh, I really like the film, but what you really should do is put 2 Corinthians 5.21 and this other verse and this other verse on the screen at the end just to make it super clear what it's about. <laughs> and I was like, well, okay, I recognize that. I, I get the impulse. I respect that. But I want you to share that verse. You watch this film with a friend, then you pull out your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21. And explain how this story relates to that. Now, someone could have just watched that story and enjoyed it. And I still think God will work through that. But you are the person he wants to work through. Same thing with Narnia. Narnia is not meant as this tool, like you said. It's not meant to just be just chucked at someone like a chick track or something. Like I'm not against gospel tracks, okay? But it, it's not meant to just do all the work for us. We are meant to, to do the work of evangelism, discipleship. Jesus commissioned us, not a book. And so, yes, you can use the book, but you can also enjoy it and you can enjoy it in conversation with others. That is such a great point. Evangelism is the job of the person who loves Jesus, not the story by the person who loves Jesus. We can put that out there, uh, but a story is not a sermon and not even a good sermon. It should be just based on the allegories. Yeah, to wrap this one up, uh, we actually have a quote from uh, the Lorehaven Magazine review of the Chronicles. I actually wrote it myself, not that they needed my endorsement. This is from our spring 2020 issue, and we will link to the full review in our show notes for this episode. Quote, alas, Narnia's beauties often get blunted or made lukewarm by the persistent myth spread by well-meaning readers, including many Christians, that the Narnia books are merely allegorical. But the allegory label ignores the story's true purpose, according to Lewis, who insisted on calling his world a supposal. In one letter, Lewis wrote that his Narnia stories answered the question, what might Christ become like if there really were a world like Narnia and he chose to be incarnate and die and rise again in that world as he actually has done in ours? Lewis then concluded, this is not allegory at all. Case closed and Aslan be praised that it is closed because if we turn these stories into mere allegory, we might end up using Narnia like a mere code or container pointing to higher ideals. Like the foolish Uncle Andrew, we might stand in the middle of a wondrous world being created by a lion's song and think only of the stuff we can shove into the soil to dig up more of the machine parts that we want. End quote. So let's not be like Uncle Andrew here and ignore the magic of Narnia in favor of our own practical goals. And let's not ignore Lewis. Uh, if we do, then we ourselves should be ignored because we're not reading the story properly. That's bad hermeneutics. If you go to the Bible and try to impose your own interpretation on it, uh, rather than respecting the authors and the capital A author for what they are intending, we don't want to be like those bad old liberals who ignore the miraculous and just try to figure out uh, what that uh, Red Sea parting has to say about human nature or something. And let's not enable uh, bad stories, inferior stories that are just tools made to hammer morals into children using uh, allegories or images. Uh, some Christians are still trying to work through this myth as we're trying to figure out what is it about fantasy that's so great. It's great if we arrive at the whole, maybe it's great if it's allegory, but let's graduate from that class and move on down the hall and figure out why imagination has value all on its own without deciding that this must mean that. However, 
Zach, I would suggest, and again, this is a subjective order I came up with for my list here of the top seven myths. I still think this one came close to being the top myth, but I think there's one more on top of that, at least at that point in time. And uh, this one is actually, I think, the most prevalent myth about the Chronicles of Narnia that we see. Yeah, so we are at myth number one, the top myth of the Chronicles of Narnia, which is that Lewis's world is safer for children than all the other fantasy magical tales out there. Yeah, I don't actually see anyone writing a, a term paper or a master's thesis about this. It's just an impression that I catch. And it is a side effect of Christians trying to figure out what, if anything, is good or redemptive about these uh, fantasy tales, the whole idea of a fantasy series that communicates biblical truth and imagination. It's this impression that we have that, well, C.S. Lewis is safe. He's dead. Uh, as far as we know, he didn't have a bunch of scandals. Doesn't that mean then that the Chronicles of Narnia have surpassed the mortal bounds of need for discernment and caution? The magic in Narnia, that can bug some people, but hey, uh, we have a Jesus lion in there and all the magic is a gift from him, right? So it's safe, right? And of course, say it's even safer if we get it, uh, get the idea that Narnia is an allegory. Uh, so there's a white witch, but it's basically the devil. And we, we're not legalists. We don't think that there can't be bad guys in stories. And there's a Jesus lion. It's Christian, right? So it's safe, but mm, not really. You may as well say that Aslan is good because he's safe. But as we know in the Chronicles of Narnia, the famous line is that Aslan is not safe. He is unpredictable. He will challenge you. He has claws. Uh, one of my favorite scenes, uh, Jill meets Aslan in the silver chair in a very strange way, in a very strange environment. And she is terrified of him and yet captivated by him. And in particular, uh, she asks him, do you eat girls? And he says, I've swallowed up men and women, boys and girls, kingdoms and realms. And he doesn't brag about it. He doesn't seem like he's sorry about it. He just states it as a matter of pure fact. Aslan is not safe. He is not tame, but he is good. And I think that description can also be applied to the Chronicles of Narnia themselves. They're unpredictable. They are unsafe. They require discernment, especially when we come up with a little myths about them and those weird things that Lewis was into, like the pagan creatures and the fawns and all of that. Quick minor concession, though. If we start saying that something isn't safe, you've heard this, Zach. Listeners, you've heard this, where there are some Christians who are like, Christian fiction is too safe. That's disgusting. And they actually get a little bit legalistic it about like it. Too. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they, 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 they say it like the bully, you know, from a 1990s sitcom, you know, that little sneer. Uh, that's exactly how they sound. Okay, so I don't want to give that impression. Like, I, I'm not going to go out and burn Thomas Kincaid paintings or Amish romance novels or something because they're too safe. Uh, safety is good, especially if you're having a hard time. You may mm -hmm. go back and watch that Hallmark movie. You may hang that nice uh, you know, saccharine painting with a cottage over your sofa in the living room, uh, especially if you've been through a hard times. Sometimes you just want something that's a little safe and predictable. We're not saying that that is evil. All we're saying is that if you call something safe, sometimes that can come back to bite you. Not everything in Narnia is safe, and it is good to have stories that will challenge us in a biblical way. The Bible itself is not safe. Go to the Song of Solomon. Go to that one chapter in Judges or Ezekiel. They are not safe, but they are still 
very, very good. Uh, which leads, of course, Zach, you may have noticed this as, as a parent, even in the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you haven't, you're about to. Characters in Narnia will use bad words, like traditionally bad words, but they're misspelled. So it kind of sneaks in a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I believe in particular in the silver chair. Again, uh, Jill is having a banter with Eustace in the, uh, in the yard of experiment house, the school. And she, she says something like dim good of you or something like that. And like it's spelled weird, but she's saying <laughs> she's saying the D word. Uh, Uncle Andrew. It's almost like Lewis uh, censored it in the print. Just a bit. Uh, and, and who knows? Maybe it appears <laughs> differently in the British edition or something. Uncle Andrew in The Magician's Nephew uh, is also saying some some similar words. It's obscured by the spelling, which is meant to convey like his, his dialect because and- Uncle Andrew has a very distinct voice. Uh, there's violence in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, there's beheadings like Peter wallops off <laughs> Telmarine's head and Prince Caspian, the very martial type book there there's other violence there's threats uh, there's bullying there's some intense scenes and all that in addition to the idea that there are these uh, pagan creatures there are gods and goddesses in narnia they are not uppercase g gods or goddesses there aslan is still the king of beasts he's the king of the wood he is the creator of this world there's no question ultimately that aslan is over all these things but those should be challenging elements don't skip over them there's a river god in Aslan's world. He says, hail Aslan, and then asks Aslan what he's supposed to do. But what do we mean by God? What do we mean by gods and goddesses there? Uh, well women and tree spirits and all of those things. Bacchus, the, uh, the hedonistic figure from Greek mythology, uh, shows up in Prince Caspian. Used to drive me nuts. What hath this thing to do with Aslan? Used to weird me out. It challenged me then, and I get it a little bit better now. Uh, but that definitely takes some work to wrestle with this. So if you've got time, and you should have time, and if you're a parent, discern Narnia with your kids. Yes, Lewis is a good author. He's Christian. As far as we know, he died a, a Christian, still confessing his faith. But that doesn't make him safe. He did have some different types of views. There's no escape just because the author is a Christian. So read Narnia with your kids if you can. Read it beforehand. Capture that childlike wonder and uh, get to know Narnia all over again as a grown-up. But then go with your kids into the wardrobe. One of the best things you can do is read it out loud and then talk about it. With age appropriateness, of course, you know, you may not talk about exactly how Mr. Tumnus is a subversion and an echo of the Pan myth. You know, the original fawn who would use his instrument to lure children into his cave, and then we just won't talk about exactly what happens there. Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe subverts that, though, and puts Tumnus under the rule, under the good paw of Aslan. But you might talk some about that, but just keep in mind the, the developmental level of your children and the spiritual maturity level, but use it to challenge their growth and to urge their growth Uh, as a good Narnian, but even better, uh, as a good follower of Jesus. I can relate to this myth so much, okay? So I'm I'm a parent of four children from ages four to 13. We've handed the Narnia series to our older two kids. uh, They're 10 and 13, and didn't think twice about it, just because we're like, oh, it's C.S. Lewis, it's fine. And, you know, then they come to us and talk about some of the issues in it. They, they more so talk to Naomi because she's she's read the whole series and you know, again, I'm still reading all of them. But 
I, I, Stephen, you and I have talked about this offline that I think what makes us implicitly trust Lewis is that he's also written nonfiction. So he's written Mere Christianity. He's written The Great Divorce, all these other books and, and, you know, the screw tape letters, which is kind of in between fiction and nonfiction, but we, we know Lewis's heart. Okay. Like we know his beliefs, we know he's solid and, you know, he was a parent. And so what he writes in Narnia is, is coming from that. And we can trust him. We, we can trust Narnia because we can trust him. We can trust him because of everything else he's written. And we've talked about this with fiction authors today that are also musicians in, in the 21st century church, we implicitly trust worship leaders and, and sometimes maybe too much when it comes to the, you know, CCM, I'm not going to get into all that, but we're, we're used to trusting whoever we hear on the radio or we, we watch on YouTube or here at these big churches. A good example of this though is Andrew Peterson. So he has Behold the Lamb, a song we sing in church. He's got so much great music. And he has a fantasy series called The Wingfeather Saga. Again, I handed that book to my 13-year-old without a second thought. I, I'm like, hey, I know Andrew Peterson. I trust him. I'm fine with my daughter reading any of his stuff. I didn't even read it. Now, would I do the same with another Christian author who's not a worship leader or not a nonfiction writer who I don't know their theology as well? Well, yeah. So again, I, I would hesitate. I'll, I'll just admit it. This is something I am trying to address in my own life. Not that I should just throw any and every book at my kids and not even necessarily that I need to read everything with them. Although I, I think as parents, we should as much as we can. And, and Naomi is great about that. She, and she reads a lot faster than I do. Uh, and my problem is I start too many books. So I, I have way too many unfinished books sitting around. Yeah, you and me both <laughs> <laughs> working on it. That's right. my character flaw. That, that's, that's the challenge <laughs> to me for sure. Oh yeah. So I think we should be involved as far as we can. And Hey, in in Lorehaven magazine, we don't shy away from this. We have the sort of parent section, like here's some things to discern about the story, but man, this is a tough topic because yeah, we don't want our kids learning too many things about the real world too early. I, I learned a lot of things. Okay. At age 10, I wish I hadn't learned. I wish there was an easy answer to this myth. I, I think the reality is, is that we do live in an R-rated world, as Indy Wilson has said. You know, what, what, was, what was that whole quote he said at Realmakers? Well, I don't remember if he said it at Realmakers, but it is a famous quote that gets shared by meme, and it should. He says, uh, in, uh, paraphrasing here, uh, we live in an R-rated world and no one is checking IDs. So train your children, uh, give them you know hearts full of truth and imagination, and when they've grown, they will pollute the shadows. That that final three words there, that is a direct quote from him. So Narnia can help your kids grow and be challenged and learn to pollute the shadows in biblical fashion. Yeah, you may not be able to read everything, but it does help, doesn't it, though? It's true, Zach, that it does help if the author is known for overall solid biblical nonfiction or a, you know several decades of faithfulness and increasing depth in his creativity, like, like an Andrew Peterson or someone else, you know, one of those good nonfiction authors who is also skilled at the fiction and even better, understands the difference between them, doesn't try to make the fiction just a targeted uh, project for the younger people using allegories or images. You know, he understands 
why fiction works and why it's different from something like nonfiction or apologetics or singing. Lewis understood that and other authors understand that. Frankly, I hope to be one of them as well because my first book is nonfiction about media discernment by Christian parents in light of the gospel and in light of the purpose of stories and songs in popular culture. So you know, maybe that'll happen to me as well. Uh, there is something to be said for winning that kind of trust, especially when there are many well-meaning Christian fantasy creators you know, who seem to be maybe missing the point of fantasy. You know, Either they're just kind of shallow entertainment and they're okay, uh, or even at Lorehaven, we've run into a few books that we cannot review because it is very clear that the author is coming intentionally from a perspective of opposing uh, biblical truth or just bad stories, you know, just not well put together. So some of those stories seem to ignore the purpose of fantasy and the best way that fantasy can reach kids. So it does take discernment to find the good ones. And it does, though, take some built up trust to find the good authors. Well, and, you know, just this whole category of safe fiction, uh, I, I have a lot of trouble with that. I, I, again, I understand you not wanting yourself or your kids to read things that really make you question things. But at the same time, I like how you said earlier, Stephen, that Lewis's Narnia series is a supposal. You know, he's not saying, oh, there's actually a planet, you know called Narnia, where you can go through this wardrobe and here's everything that happens and here's all this magic and magic is real. Talking lions are real. Yeah. Th this is a what if scenario. It is a simulation. You know, it's a, uh, a parallel world or whatever it's, it's imagination. And so that I think is really the core issue is that we have to train ourselves to go, okay, suppose this was real. What do we think about it? And you know, this is not a real world, but let's examine it. Let's think through it. And one of the things I'm doing in, in the fiction I'm writing is examining a very particular biblical idea. And it's not even one I totally agree with. And I'm not doing it to even argue against the idea, but I'm doing it to explore the idea. At Rollmakers, one of the teachers, Stephen James, said, if you want to send a message or write a write a book about a theme, then write a nonfiction book. But if you're writing fiction, then write a story based around a question or a dilemma or something you want to explore. And then he said, there's this off-repeated advice, write what you know. Well, I like to write what I want to know. That is the purpose of fiction is to explore these questions or suppose these ideas are true. And then you, then you talk about it, then you think about it. I think right away, we, we have to even challenge this idea of fiction being safe or unsafe because it's, it's not only not real, it's, a, it's an examination of an idea or a question. Mm -hmm. so, or several uh, ideas and questions all at once. Yeah. yeah. And, sure. and if you say that fiction is not safe, that is true. But nonfiction is also very unsafe. Uh, scripture actually says that if you're going out to teach nonfiction, if you aspire to be a leader, uh, then you're going to be held to greater account. How does that apply to the Christian who's a, a fiction creator? It probably does, because in a sense, you're still teaching, but you're teaching more directly to the heart, and you're teaching more than one thing at once. I think there was actually a podcast for a while there about Christian movies and Christian creativity. It was called More Than One Lesson, which echoes what you were saying, Zach, about the idea that you're not just talking about one theme, a good story is going to deal with multiple themes at once because it's dealing with multiple types of persons at once. 
in our earliest myth, I think, that we talked about, speculating that each of the Chronicles of Narnia has a, a medieval planetary influence in there. That doesn't mean that the whole story, for example, is about uh, Mars or, or Venus in the case of the magician's nephew, which has a lot of maternal uh, type uh, images and the idea of the plants uh, growing from nothing and all of that. That doesn't mean that everything in there is about it. Uh, there's also other themes mixed in. And that's, that's what a good, unsafe, but challenging and healthy story should be, is about more than one lesson, more than one theme, and therefore has some risks there, but the rewards are great indeed. Well, now let's move into our fantastic fans segment and open up our mailbag. So our first note is from Elizabeth, who says, quote, I finally read the Narnia series with my daughter. I've got to say it was the first time I got through all the books. Usually I'd make it as far as the Don Treader and then get distracted by another book or series. It was a fun bonding experience and spurred us on to other books, including The Hobbit, which she also loved. These are books she'd never have read on her own because she prefers graphic novels. I'm curious, are creative types more likely to prefer fantasy, whereas more logical engineer thinking types might be more likely to prefer science fiction? I ask because my husband is more creative artistic, whereas I'm less so. I'm better at fixing the broken washer than decorating the house. He prefers fantasy. I prefer sci-fi. I've tried fantasy, but rarely do I enjoy it. What do you think? End quote. Well, thank you, Elizabeth, for writing us. Man, that is a really good question. I'm an engineer by a college degree, okay, uh, telecommunications engineering. And so I'm really into sci-fi now. But before I went to college, I was really into fantasy. The Wheel of Time is, is huge for me. And Dragonlance and Sh- uh, Shannara, Shannara, all those books, I love those. I, I Yeah, I haven't really read a lot of fantasy since my engineering days. So that I wonder if that has influenced my love for sci-fi now, but I don't know. I, I think in either case, so I, I heard a good quote again at Realm Makers who, where someone said, actually, I'm sorry, this was an interview with Orson Scott Card where he said, fantasy and sci-fi are the same thing. They're both a fantastical story. It's just that fantasy focuses on the trees. Sci-fi focuses on the rivets, <laughs> on the machines. And fantasy focuses on the natural world, but they're both, you know, they're both fantasy in, in a way. I think that, yes, we, we tend to get drawn towards them. Uh, I've seen this with Naomi, that she gets more drawn towards the historical fiction, whereas I'm more drawn towards science fiction because it's futuristic. So we just tend to think, uh, we tend to get drawn towards future of the past differently. I don't know. I, I think that we all have kind of our interests. What, what do you think here, Stephen? I think that that is the best thing to say there is that fantasy and sci-fi are in the same spectrum, uh, which I like to call fantastical stories, because we also need to include uh, the paranormal, the horror, uh, the, the superhero tales, all of those. They're the same type of story. And you can see that, especially when various creators will blend them. Uh, what are the Marvel movies, for example? Yes, there are superheroes in there, the traditional kind. Uh, but there are also fantasy creatures. There's the winged horse. There's a planet. There are spaceships. It's every genre in there. Uh, eventually, they'll probably even get to some more traditional horror-type uh, elements in that series. So uh, some stories will just blend everything. And for my part, I like both, uh, particularly at different times in my life. I will jump from fantasy to sci-fi without thinking of it much. I will say that I tend to prefer... Uh, the softer kind of sci-fi, just out of personal preference, uh, the sci-fi that is way too focused on the rivets and kind of ignores the people 
uh, in favor of calculating exactly what that space elevator would look like if it got knocked out of orbit and then fell onto the planet Mars uh, at the early stage of the terraforming project. Yeah, that, that stuff kind of bores me a little bit. Maybe it's because I am a little bit more right-brained. I am more about the people. If fantasy helps with that, then I'll like that fantasy. If sci-fi helps with that, then I'll like that sci-fi. I can't choose between Star Wars, which is more fantasy with spaceships, and Star Trek, uh, which is also fantasy with spaceships, but has more sci-fi-ish type stuff. I like them both. So, yeah, there may be a difference, though, if you, you know, particularly have a personality drawn one way or the other. Uh, just, just for me, I think there's room for both. Yeah, Vul- Vulcans are just space elves. <laughs> yeah, basically. Then, yeah, then you get Tribbles, which, okay, come on, that's that's total fantasy, right? Right. Okay, so our next listener note here is from Christian, who says, quote, Hello, from Australia. I'm really enjoying the podcast's combination of depth and fun. Thanks for all of your hard work. I've had a few friends recommend the Wheel of Time series to me, so I should get onto it. Onwards and upwards for Narnia and for Aslan, end quote. So, hey, thank you, Christian. We're, we're so happy to hear from one of our listeners in Australia. Thank you so much for taking that up. And by the way, we know there are many more listeners from Australia. So, hey, this is your invitation, listener. If, if you're living down under, then please let us know. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. Next on Fantastical Truth, what happens when a nerdy kid who writes superhero stories goes to camp and wages war on a bully, then plays the victim of a movie alien invasion, then gets lost in a hot air balloon, and then many other misadventures involving crocodiles and the space shuttle and a blundering ballerina, and of course, uh, a human hockey puck. I grew up loving this story for middle grade readers, The Incredible Worlds of Wally McDougal. That series is from author Bill Myers, and now in 2020, they are actually re-releasing this series with a new cover, some facelifts there, and I couldn't be happier. Oh, wait, actually, I could be happier because we're actually talking with Bill Myers in our next episode. He has been behind uh, not just this series, but many other novels and books uh, for adult readers and kid readers, readers of all ages. Uh, He's actually working on a movie right now. We get into talking about some of that. Uh, You shan't want to miss the incredible worlds of Bill Myers. Meanwhile, you can blame C.S. Lewis for any uh, questionable beliefs that he actually had, but don't blame him for beliefs he didn't actually accept. Also, go beyond the simpler allegory into deeper fantastical truths and be willing to take some biblical risks in the stories that you explore and encourage your kids and others to explore as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth. <laughs>